All right, here we go. Didactic Mind, episode 95, Empire of Lies. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Didactic Mind podcast. I am Didact, your very heavy, very humble host. Uh, and this is a special podcast, given that it's been recorded in a time of war, obviously, so is the previous one. But um, I have just been really stupidly busy the last couple of weeks. And so, you know, to my esteemed Podbean subscribers, to my esteemed listeners, to my friends from the site and everywhere else, I do apologize. I meant to record something last week, but I was just ridiculously busy writing a what is currently a 90-page report and will probably be about 140 by the time it's finished. Um, mostly appendices and other junk, but uh, it is... Trust me, it is hard work um, when you're the only native English speaker in your team and you're trying to write a report on a, a comprehensive uh, market analysis on a very complex and uh, thorny subject, which is to say cryptocurrencies. So I hope to be able to get into more detail about that later. I've had some interest from people uh in my Telegram channel about it. And indeed, if you are interested in interacting with me more directly, you'll get uh, my hot takes on various things coming um, via the Telegram channel itself. There's a link in the description box. It's a private invitation link. You can't join it without that. You can't find it without that. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. I tend to curate that channel pretty, pretty closely. But we're up to already 25, 26 subscribers, I think it is. Uh, what are we up to now? 20, 26 subscribers. Uh, well, 25 if you exclude me, obviously. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm basically using that as a channel to get an alternative point of view out there, especially about the war. Uh, I subscribe to a few alternative Telegram channels myself. I get uh, information, I get some of my information from Russians themselves. Uh, other information comes from people that I know or from channels that I follow. And what you'll find is that basically most of what you've been told about the war in Ukraine is a lie. And indeed, that is the focus of tonight's discussion or today's discussion, depending on where you are when you get it. Um, essentially, what I wanted to talk about is the background to the war why it happened, what we've learned in the two weeks since the war has been going, and the level of deception and deceit in particular around the war itself, from both sides, but mostly from the Western side. What you're going to find is, if you actually look into the details, the West is by far the most irresponsible and most reprehensible in terms of information that it puts out. And the Ukrainians are just as bad. And I mean no disrespect to the Ukrainian people when I say this, because they're suffering terribly through an awful, awful, horrendous situation. Genuinely, I mean, this is appalling. It's, it's ridiculous. It's evil. What they're going through is just wrong. At the same time, their leadership particularly their civilian and military leadership, just tells you lies constantly. And we are expected to believe these lies without reservation, without hesitation. Which is why I started that Telegram channel in large measure, because I'm so sick and tired of seeing the lies from the Western prostitutes. 
they really have outdone themselves with this war. I mean, the, the misinformation was bad enough when we had to deal with the Kung flu. That was pretty ridiculous. But it is amazing how quickly the Kung flu narrative has morphed into the Russia evil narrative. Have you noticed at all that the Kung flu has basically disappeared from everybody's consciousness? In the space of two weeks, that's all it took. We are now seeing countries rolling back all Kung flu restrictions, all scandemic restrictions. Ireland has scrapped all of them. You can enter Ireland without having to take a PCR test, without having to wear a mask, without having to show vaccine certificates, without having to do anything. You can enter Ireland and you're good to go. Uh, a number of European countries are looking to do the same thing. I believe Austria is dropping most of its mandates for masks and social distancing. I believe Israel is looking to do something similar, although I could be wrong about that. I don't have specific information on the subject. The UK has been free since basically middle of February. Actually, earlier than that, middle of January, to be honest. And in practice, most of the people in Pommy Bastard land have not even been paying attention to the mask mandates and to the vaccine mandates and all the rest of it. Oddly enough, believe it or not, the United Kingdom is actually more free than most of the United States, at least the blue states, I would say. The red states, you know, life has been normal for like over a year. You know, fair enough. Uh, the blue states, they're, they've, they're retarded. I mean, they're run by literal morons. They're run by Democrats. You know, what do you expect? But... If you look worldwide, particularly among the most cucked out and wimpy states in Europe, they're really rolling back their restrictions quickly. And yet, here comes this very convenient war with Russia. And what do people start doing? What do governments start doing? They start imposing massive restrictions on whom Western companies can do business with. If you look at what Russia's going through right now, Coca-Cola and Pepsi are both exiting the Russian market. Airbus and Boeing have abandoned Russia. Visa, MasterCard, American Express, PayPal, Revolut, Wise have all left. Which opens up actually huge opportunities for others to come in and, and take that territory. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Russian people are suffering terribly right now. I'm, I know for a fact that prices in Russia are skyrocketing. For a whole variety of things, food, transport, energy, uh, white goods, luxury goods are through the roof. I mean, it's crazy how expensive things are getting over there. And yet, there are opportunities. The sanctions are not uniform, okay? You keep hearing that um, Europe has basically stopped doing business with Russia. That's not true. The Germans are desperate for Russian energy and Russian gas. Russia has said, the Deputy Minister for Energy or whatever it was, uh, whatever his name is, uh, uh, I've, I've got the Sakers site up, so I'll go look up his name. But uh, this guy basically said, uh, you know, yesterday, ah, here he is. Uh, hang on, where is he? Yeah, this chap. Deputy Prime Minister uh, Novak of the Russian Federation. Uh, Alexander Novak. Uh, DPM of Russia basically said outright we're not going to ditch our obligations we're going to continue supplying um, uh, nieft Russian gas uh, to 
to Germany. And Germany depends on Russia for about 49% of its total gas. It's the biggest economy in Europe. They desperately need to be able to pay for that gas, and they're not going to shut down Nord Stream 1. The Italians want luxury goods exempted from those sanctions. And yet the U.S. Is st- it has banned all crude imports from Russia. Well, that, that's about 7%, 4 to 7% of the U.S.'s supply. Now, what, what does all this accomplish? Absolutely nothing for Russia in the long run. The Russian people are going to face tremendous hardship and dislocation for six months, thereabouts. It's going to be miserable. I mean, sending money to and from Russia is very difficult now. You get absolutely screwed on the exchange rates. If you try to send money to Russia, for instance, in dollars, you might get quoted a rate of like $119 or $110, something like that. You know what the actual exchange rate is? It's close to 131 rubles to the dollar. Okay. So you're getting screwed on like a 10 or 11 ruble spread. On top of which, you've got the fees that you have to pay for sending the money itself. So you're, you're really getting screwed royally on um, remittances abroad. But all of these things open up massive opportunities. And those opportunities are what the empire of lies, which is what the United States is right now. The United States government is the empire of lies. And that's just... That's just the, the only really sensible way of looking at it. That is what the empire of lies is trying to control. If you listen to uh, Focahontas, uh, <laughs> the joke, the, the moral cretin, the retard that is Elizabeth Warren, talking about cryptocurrencies. She doesn't have the first clue about what cryptocurrencies are. She's spouting nonsense about how uh, the United States can regulate them. Here's the reality. I know because I've been doing some a lot of work in cryptocurrencies for the last uh, three months or so. The United States wants to ban cryptocurrency addresses owned by Russians. And they can do that by attacking cryptocurrency exchanges, centralized exchanges. Coinbase, for instance, has blocked 25,000 Russian crypto wallet addresses. They can't send or receive crypto. Well, guess what? That's not going to stop people from trading in crypto. It just means that they can't go through Coinbase. You can still go through other blockchains, other networks. You just don't end up using Coinbase. Binance is probably going to do the same thing. Binance, I believe, is, uh, is I think it's UK-based. I could be, I'm probably wrong about that. But Binance is, is likely to do the same thing because of the UK's financial sanctions against Russia. Now, all of this is not going to hurt the Russians in the long run. In six months, they're going to start recovering very quickly. If you look at the Russian financial system, they already have a payments processing system in place domestically, internally. They have a payments processing network, which actually Visa and MasterCard and Amex and everybody else rely on. If you, if you were to go to Russia and use your debit card there, right, and back before the sanctions happened, the payments would be processed for Russian merchants internally. The VAT would be automatically charged, uh, NDS as it's called, NDS is their uh, NALOG, um, their tax. And it would go to a central, a massive central database in Moscow. And they have actually a very, very efficient tax collection system. One of the best in the world. It, seriously, I mean, the Russian VAT collection system is incredibly efficient, believe it or not. None of that has changed. The Russians still have that system in place. The payments processing network that they have is called MIR, Peace or World. Uh, either one. Um, it translates as, as either of those things. 
but their their domestic payments processing system allows them to run a closed not closed loop but a closed network within their borders which other companies from abroad would piggyback off of and then kind of net out collapse their transactions and process them as their russian affiliate effectively and then roll it up into their international organizations now none of that has gone away and in fact the russians are moving closer to in- integrating their full system with union pay if you don't know who union pay is it is the largest payments provider in the entire world their volume of payments processing is i have the statistics somewhere but it is it is gigantic it is like they are far and away the market leader um if you were to look and compare visa mastercard amex those three with union pay visa is the world's biggest uh western payments provider mastercard is second biggest and visa has about twice the level of transactions of mastercard okay uh if you then look at union pay union pay has so much more volume it's actually ridiculous um i have i had the thing somewhere uh let me see where is it uh research and analysis yeah i've got this thing here um so if you look at the the total volume of payments you know comparing those those three western companies against uh the chinese company it's just it's not even close i mean the 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 size differential is colossal yeah here we go uh visa union pay mastercard american express you know so visa has uh a quite a large you know level quite a large customer base in terms of uh number of purchase transactions globally but if you look at the actual customer bases i mean forget it it's it's just uh they they get blown out of the water by by uh union pay itself so they 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 can't compete because union pay has a hammerlock on the chinese market now imagine that the russians are collaborating with the chinese to ensure that they never get blocked out of um global payments ever again and that's exactly what's going to happen they're not going to be blocked anymore you can't stop them it can't be done so what is going to happen in the future well what's going to happen is that russia is going to integrate much more closely with china and western companies are going to be completely locked out that's the truth there's simply no way for them to get back into the market once they got kicked out so why then is the empire trying so hard to suppress russia the answer is because it's all a bunch of lies they're using this opportunity to gain power and leverage over you as a person as a sovereign individual that's the truth every single thing you've heard about this war so far is a lie You've been told by the western media that Russia invaded Ukraine unprovoked. That is flat out a lie. Russia has tried for 8 years and actually longer than that if you think about it. For 8 years Russia has tried to tell the west do not expand into Ukraine. This is our territory or right on our border. We will view any attempt to position NATO soldiers or integrate Ukraine into NATO as a direct provocation 
2019, Ukraine embedded membership into NATO as one of its into its constitution as an actual goal. That's something that they actually wanted to do. It's in their constitution. It's written into it. Zelensky himself signed that into law. Not only that, but the coup in 2014, the Euromaidan, turned out to have cost the United States $5 billion. The CIA sponsored it. Victoria Newland and Anthony Blinken were architects of that coup. The rise of neo-Nazi militia brigades and paramilitaries and indeed National Guard units is something that the West just refuses to document. But it's absolutely true. It has happened. If you go and look up the Azov Battalion, the Azov Battalion uses as its symbol the Wolfsangel, uh, Wolf's Angel, if you put the two words together, Wolf's and Angel. That is the symbol of the 2nd SS uh, Panzer Division from the, from World War II. Go look it up. It's basically a backwards N bisected with an I. And if you talk to the Azov Battalion, they will tell you that as far as they're concerned, that just stands for national identity. Um, that's not what it translates into in Ukrainian or in Russian, as far as I'm aware. Though I could be wrong about that. Um, but that's not what it stands for. The NI is, or what it looks like is NI, but that's not actually what it is. This is a Nazi symbol. This is actually a bit of Nazi memorabilia. So they are not good actors, and yet they are very much backed and supported by the US government. Um, these people are funded in large measure by Western tax dollars, uh, believe it or not. If you actually look at the money, and if you, if you read my post, Why War? This is Why, you'll see a document embedded on my site, which is an English translation of a very thorough compilation uh, of documents and pictures that track all of these links between these various organizations. You will see that the Azov Battalion and Pravi Sektor, Right Sector, and a bunch of other neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine all have serious links to Western funding sources, including sources in Canada, the USA, the UK, Germany, seriously, Israel, seriously, and a bunch of other Western countries. This web of funding is something that the United States media will not talk about. The Zionist media, the left-wing media in the US will not talk about. And it's very strange to hear myself saying Zionist media, you know, I mean, I am more right-wing than just about anybody you've ever met. And yet here I am saying things that you would typically hear a left-wing lunatic saying, because that's the level of corruption and deceit that you're seeing in the media. The media is heavily Jewish-owned in the United States. It's heavily Jewish-owned elsewhere, actually. And you have to understand, in order to understand how deep the lies run, the level of hatred that secular Jews have for Russia. It's not easy to understand until, you, it's not easy to understand the whole Russia situation until you understand this piece of it. So what you'll typically find with Jews who have 
embedded themselves in positions of power elsewhere, whether it's in the media or in finance or anywhere else, they tend to be very much secular types. And they have a love of power and money, and they have what um, I would say my good friend, the male brain, you know, uh, Israeli Jew, would call the Jewish gamma streak. And you'll find that embedded throughout their culture and their history. They really have a massive inferiority complex because of all the persecution, because of all the things that they've been subjected to. And those things, you know, make no mistake, those things are terrible. They're evil. But they, they have this huge chip on their shoulders. And whenever they, they find themselves in positions of power, they always, always, without exception, pretty much, try to use that to influence events and peoples for their own ends, not for the betterment of the country that they're in. They, they influence things for their own tribe, for their own people. And it never works out. It never, ever works out. Ever. It always results, every single time, in the native population turning against them and expelling them. And every single time that's happened throughout history, you will find that the country that did the expelling, the, that, that expelled them outright, tends to flourish and tends to prosper. Uh, the Jews will have you believe that it's the other way around, that, you know, it was a terrible loss of artistic and moral and mathematical and medical knowledge and so on. No, no, it wasn't. If you look at the expulsions of Jews historically, the countries that have done it, whether it's England, which did it twice, France, which did it at least once, the, um, Spain under, uh, uh, Frederick and Catherine in 14, in the late 1490s, I think it was 1492, uh, Every single one of these countries went on in subsequent centuries to become more rich, more powerful, more uh, influential than ever before. And that's because they weren't being held back by this corrupting influence. The same is true of Russia. The Russians expelled a great many of their intellectual class, uh, many of whom were outright socialists, secular socialists, and many of those secular socialists fled and went to the United States. Those secular socialists are essentially unreconstructed Trotskyites. They are the core of the neo-clown movement. The whole of the neoconservative movement stems from these uh, Trotskyites who believe in global revolution and who believe in the kind of the core elements of the Marxist philosophy, but have since evolved to embrace a much more militaristic uh, approach to spreading that power. And they have never, ever forgiven Russia for expelling them. They have always wanted to bring Russia back under their control because of what happened to uh, Lev Trotsky under Stalin's orders. I mean, he ended up with basically an ice pick in his brain uh, in Mexico. That is the root, that is the core of all of these lies. And that is why the, you see so much viciousness and hatred and vitriol directed towards Russia and towards Russians. It is, you know, I mean, I, if you read like uh, the Saker, Andrei the Saker, whatever his, uh, his, his full name is, he will say the same thing to you. I mean, he, he uses the phrase uh, snow niggers. That's, that's kind of how Russians are regarded right now as snow niggers. And it's really sad because... Russians are great and wonderful people. I mean, I know. I've spent a lot of time with them. I care about them deeply. And that's what makes me so disgusted and infuriated by what I'm seeing. 
because these wonderful, kind, big-hearted, decent, caring, tolerant, open people are being persecuted simply because they're Russian. It's ridiculous. And they're being persecuted by a media establishment and a political class that has completely lost all sense of proportion and responsibility that is driven by globalist lies. Just how big those lies are, you have seen some of it over the last two weeks. Let's unpack some of those lies. So, for instance, the Ukrainians have killed 10,000 plus Russian soldiers. They've downed 128 Russian fighters and uh, attack aircraft. They have, uh, they have stalled the Russian advance. The defenders of various Ukrainian cities are fighting heroically. The Russians are the ones who've shut down humanitarian corridors. They're the ones who are shelling civilians who are trying to escape. They're the ones attacking civilian areas. They're the ones doing this and that and the other. They're the ones who attacked Chernobyl. Chernobyl, actually, that's the correct pronunciation. Chernobyl. Um, and by the way, the way the Ukrainians spell it is, it, it's, it's weird. Um, okay, I'm biased. Я говорю по-русски, конечно, я не говорю по-украински. Поэтому мой акцент из России. И я постоянно скажу как россияне. And that's, that's just how I speak, right? That's, uh, my, my influences are all Russian. So, anyway. If, if you take the, the, the story about uh, Chernobyl, for instance, the Ukrainians ran around screaming saying Chernobyl has been attacked and the reactor shell could be breached and you could see a massive cloud of radiation floating high over the skies of Europe and everybody's going to die. And then the Russians actually took over the plant and you could see a video from uh, Ria Novosti where you could see the Russian special ops troops, the, the Spetsnaz, and the Ukrainian reactor technicians working, and the Ukrainian security technicians working side by side. And it turns out there was an agreement to lay down arms on the Ukrainian side. They said, okay, you know what? We'll work with you to make sure this plant is safe. And that's exactly what happened. All that happened was that a bunch of dust with radiation embedded in it, you know, radioactive dust got kicked up by the tanks moving through that area. And after a couple of days, the dust clouds subsided and the radiation flares went away. Just recently, we heard that the power, power lines uh, to the main reactor were cut somehow. And basically, that's going to result in a meltdown because the spent fuel can't be removed. And there's, again, mushroom cloud over Europe. Everybody's going to die. Um, this is a horrendous disaster and we need to stop the Russians. The Russian Ministry of Defense released a... Uh, a, a side note saying, uh, yeah, by the way, it was the Ukrainians who cut the power lines and shelled uh, something. Else. What, what did I... I had something about this earlier. Um, yeah, the, the Russians um, basically... Uh, where is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Russians uh, basically struck the substation power lines connected to Chernobyl, which is why something went wrong in the reactor plant. Now, what this tells me is two things. Number one, you can't trust a damn thing the Ukrainian government says, obviously. Number two, the Russian lines are stretched quite thin. And this is a big problem for them. They don't have enough troops out there to maintain the lines. Putin is playing a very dangerous, very difficult game right now. He's trying to balance the need to demilitarize Ukraine 
with the need to hold his freshest and best and strongest troops in reserve for what looks to be increasingly an inevitable strike against NATO. And if that happens, he needs to be able to pivot very quickly to fighting against NATO. And that's going to be a very, very, very difficult situation. But this, everything that you're hearing from the Ukrainians about what they've achieved and what they've accomplished is a lie. That picture of the former Miss Ukraine holding a, a rifle ready to defend her country, that's a lie. It's an airsoft gun. She's not fighting in the front lines. If I look at my LinkedIn feed, I can see loads and loads of pictures of Ukrainian women dressed in combat fatigues, ready to fight in the front lines. People look at this stuff and they don't ask themselves critically, what does it actually take to deploy a woman to the front lines? It's actually a really big mistake, a really stupid mistake to deploy a woman with no combat experience and no ability to take that kind of punishment into a combat zone. That's just dumb. It's, it's, it's beyond stupid. It's, it's like, you have no understanding of military operational capabilities. I mean, I'm a civilian. I've never fought a day in my life in the military. I have spent enough time around people who have fought in the military to understand a little bit about what it takes to assemble a fighting force. And if you bring in women with no combat experience and no ability to handle arms and ammunition, no ability to survive in the wild, no ability to integrate with their teammates and fight as part of a unit, you're going to get a lot of people killed. It looks great for photo ops. It's absolutely useless for winning wars. If you look at that, um, what the Russian, what the Ukrainians said about, uh, you know, killing 10,000 Russians. No, that's, that's bullshit. That's absolute bullshit. The best estimate that the U.S. can give is 4,500 dead. And even that is way too high. The most likely number is somewhere around 2,000 dead. Now, that's still very, very high, but the level of casualties that the Russians are taking is substantially below what the U.S. has encountered in some of its bloodiest wars, because the Russians are adopting a very cautious conservative strategy. They're not trying to just level everything. And indeed, there's a reason why. They don't want to have to pay for rebuilding at all. I mean, they're going to have to pay something, but they don't want to have to pay for rebuilding all of Ukraine. Right now, the Russians are engaged in a very stop-start kind of war. They don't know what they want to do. That's the truth. If you actually look at the observable reality on the ground, not the propaganda coming from the West, not the, 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 the bullshit coming out of the Daily Fail or um, uh, any of the other Western media outlets, you know, the, the, the New York Slimes, the Washington Compost, all the other garbage that's out there. If, you, if you're reading those, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice. That it's written by a bunch of secular Jews and Western writers who absolutely hate Russia and are brainwashed against it. When you look at people who are actually writing independent journalists, you know, and some of them do exist, not all journalists deserve to be hanged on the spot. I mean, most of them do. Uh, anybody who works for any of the big uh, uh, networks pretty much you know, shoot them on the spot. I mean, it's, it's at that point that the lies are so severe and so ridiculous. But there are independent journalists out there who are doing a good job, who are out there on the front lines, who are trying to get good information back to people. And what they're saying is radically different. The analysis coming from people like Colonel Doug McGregor, retired, uh, U.S. Army retired, is actually really useful. Doug McGregor, he's appeared on uh, Fox News a number of times, mostly on Tucker Carlson's show. 
But there was a really interesting segment. He appeared on Stuart Varney's show on Fox Business a few days ago. It was a very revealing segment. He basically talked about what the reality of the situation on the ground is. He was like, look, you can't trust anything the Ukrainians say. Everything that they say gets debunked within 24 to 48 hours. They're fighting a losing war. Zelensky is not a hero. He is prolonging the inevitable, and he's getting a lot more of his people killed in the process. All he needs to do is declare, is accept Russian terms to demilitarize, to become a neutral power, to renounce all plans of NATO admission, and most importantly, as far as um, as far as the LDNR uh, heads are concerned, as far as the Russian government is concerned, denazify Ukraine. These are not onerous terms. These are not bad things for Ukraine to do. I mean, Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe. It is an absolute shithole of a country, and the reason it's a shithole is because its leadership is so corrupt and so brazen. It's it's a kleptocracy. It's not a, a functioning democratic government. It is a complete kleptocracy. These would be good things for even a kleptocracy to accept because they can go back to stealing their uh, their own people blind, you know, without having everything destroyed around them. I mean, this is not a bad thing. I'm. Uh, th- those are my words about kleptocracy and 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 all the rest of it. But what uh, Colonel McGregor said was, Zelensky is not a hero, and this does not need to go on any longer than this. And Stu Varney was like, yeah, wait, what? He was shocked. He couldn't believe what he'd heard. He was like, are you serious? You really think he's not a hero? You think you think this isn't going well? It's like, yeah, dude, look at the data. Doug McGregor is clearly doing his research based on reality, not on Western narratives, not on what the empire of lies wants you to believe. If you look at that claim about 128 fighter jets shot down, that's bullshit. That's absolute arrant bullshit. I mean, that's ridiculous. The Ukrainians lost between 75 and 80% of their military capabilities within the first 48 hours of the war. The Russian cruise missile strikes were actually amazingly precise. And that's becoming more and more clear as you look at the evidence from cell phones, uh, cell phone footage, mobile phone footage uploaded to Telegram and elsewhere. Um, the, Rus- the, the Russians have not lost 128 combat aircraft. They have a total of like 772, or they had, before the, the war started. Uh, they had a, a bunch of fighter jets. Uh, how many did they have? I remember actually writing about this to my friend uh, before. They, they had a huge number of jets, but they hadn't deployed them all. They had 772 fighters and 739 attack aircraft. Now, for sure, the Russians have lost quite a few aircraft. They've definitely lost uh, more than four or five Su-25 Frogfoot ground attack aircraft. That's the Russian version of the A-10, but it's not as good. Uh, not nearly as good, actually, because the A-10 is, you know, I mean, that's that's the white death. Uh, it is genuinely the, the most scary attack aircraft in the world. They've definitely lost a few Su-34 Hell Ducks, um, which is the, the, the side-by-side twin-seat version of the Su-27. It's configured primarily for ground attack, and it's an absolutely, it's an absolute beautiful beast of an aircraft, but uh, you wouldn't want to be facing one when it comes roaring overhead to drop some bombs on you. It 
that's that's a, it's a scary thing. Um, they have not lost 128 aircraft. They just haven't. They've lost several. They've lost quite a few, yes, but they haven't lost 128 fighters. I mean, that's that's a joke. They don't, in the first place, the Russians have no need to deploy that many fighters because they wiped out most of the Ukrainian air force by day two. The Ukrainians have no air cover. What they do have are drones, Turkish manufactured Bayraktar drones, which most of which have been shot down at this point. They don't have effective air cover. They have effective artillery. They have effective mobile uh, howitzers and uh, self-propelled artillery. And they're hiding those things in civilian areas. You can see video evidence, again, from these telegram channels that I'm a part of, where the Ukrainians are shelling their own civilian areas. They're landing mortar shells and artillery strikes directly within civilian areas. And then they're making it look as though the Russians have done it. There's another hilarious segment on Fox. Um, Inevitably, it was Fox where a reporter standing in front of a camera, a prostitute is standing in front of a freaking camera and bloviating about, oh, you know, all these civilians have died because of Russian strikes. And <laughs> there's, there's a, a so-called corpse covered by a tarp, a black tarp, and the tarp starts blowing off. And you can see the guy underneath it is very much alive. He's a crisis actor. He's moving around. He's perfectly fine. He's moving around, he's trying to pull the top back over, and he's frantically trying to get back under it, and the top blows off because it's not secured down by the wind. And somebody runs over and is like, oh my god, i got to cover him back up. It's all on camera. It's all right there. I mean, the empire of lies is trying desperately to get you to think that the Russians are bombing the shit out of civilians and are killing thousands upon thousands of them. Have civilians been killed in the strikes? Yes, absolutely. No doubt about that. Not arguing otherwise. But the toll is much lower than you might believe. If you look at the claims that the Ukrainians are making about how the Russians are shelling civilians trying to get out, no, that's not true. The Russians have halted their offensives repeatedly. When they give civilians the ability to evacuate out of places like Mariupol and uh, Kharkov and Kiev, what happens? the neo-Nazi battalions embedded within the civilian population stop them from leaving, and they start shooting people who try to leave. That's the truth. The neo-Nazi brigades are hiding out in places like kindergartens and schools. They're doing exactly what the Fellahin and the Mujahideen did in Iraq when the United States came in and absolutely stomped them into the dirt in the space of about three weeks. In order to avoid being destroyed, they mingled with the civilian population. Now, that's a natural instinct, and it's unsurprising that they took it, or they, they did that, but it is a complete and total violation of the laws of war. That removes the distinction between civilian and combatant. And under the Geneva Conventions and under the laws of war under which every army is supposed to fight, that means that the invading army, the opposing army, no longer has any restraints that it needs to observe. It doesn't have any way of telling who is who. At that point, you can essentially flatten a city and it's legal. It sounds horrific. It is horrific. But there is a very cold and terrible logic to the laws of war which you need to follow if you want to survive as a country, as a people, as a nation. 
There is a reason why we have these distinctions. There is a reason why, historically, there have always been clear distinctions between officers and rank and file, and between a standing army and the civilian population. So you can tell who is whom. And you know who you need to kill and who you need to keep alive. If the two stop blending together, which is what happens in most modern wars, you no longer have a way of keeping the two separate, and you end up taking a lot more casualties than you need to, which is why armies simply flatten places like that. They just kill everybody there, and then they move on. And the soldiers are left to deal with the horrors of what they've done on their own consciences. It's not a pretty situation. It's evil to have to do that. It's a part of the survival instinct to run into a civilian population and take refuge there, but it's evil. The, what it visits upon those civilians is evil. And that's what those neo-Nazis are doing. They are, they are really doing some very, very evil things. Furthermore, the empire of lies wants you to believe, once again, that there will be no long-term consequences from this. This is beyond idiotic. The empire is playing a very dangerous game right now. It's playing an extremely high-stakes game. The Empire is betting that Putin will be deposed by his people when they're fed up of him basically destroying their lives. That doesn't seem to be happening. Putin's popularity, as far as I can tell, is higher than ever. I know personally, personally, of someone who loathes Putin, can't stand him. And she's like, I understand why we had to do this. I understand that the West is responsible for this war. It's the, this is this is the fault of the Western powers. It's it's not just one person actually. It's two people that I two women that I know who are like this, and they're just like this is so evil. I mean, one of them is one of them says to me, uh, "Didn't Putin want to rebuild the Soviet Union?" I said, uh, "Yes." He's on record as saying that the Soviet Union's dissolution was the greatest tragedy of the greatest geopolitical disaster of of the twentieth century. He is on record as saying that. That is true. The bit that you're missing from that context is the fact that Putin has also gone on record number of times after that, both before and after it, saying that the Soviet Union was also a disaster for Russia. How do you reconcile those two statements? The way to reconcile them is to remember that during the time of the Soviet Union, Russia, you know, Russia proper, actually lost enormous amounts of territory, enormous amounts, to other countries which have since taken over those territories and maladministered them. Parts of Georgia used to be Russian. Significant parts of Ukraine used to be Russian. Crimea used to be Russian. Sevastopol is Russian territory. It's a Russian city. It was All of Crimea was ceded to Ukraine again, as I mentioned in my last podcast, by a, an ukase of, uh, in 1954 by the Soviet Presidium, a special directive. That is not Russian, uh, that is not Ukrainian territory to begin with. You will not find one treaty, you will never find one treaty that says this was originally Ukrainian soil. It never was originally Ukrainian soil. Anybody who claims it was doesn't know his history, because if you look back through time, who owned Crimea First, it was the essentially the uh, Crimean Khanate, 
back when there was an actual state, the Ukrainian people didn't own that territory. It was really owned by um, essentially the Mongol Empire. You know, this is like going back 800 years. And before that, it was kind of, it was never really owned by anybody. The Kievan Rus uh, were concentrated around Kiev, you know, hundreds of kilometers away. They had no particular stake or interest in Crimea. Um, Prince Rurik's kingdom in 862 did not expand into that direction. It's, it's it expanded along the Dnieper River, right? So all of these things don't make sense. The, the, the claims that the Ukrainians are making don't make sense in a historical context. Russia has always owned Crimea, and it gave Crimea away, and now it's taken it back. To argue otherwise is to argue against history. If you look at what Putin has said since then about the losses that the Soviet Union inflicted upon Russia, I mean, Russia lost huge amounts of her people. It, the Soviets forcibly relocated a number of Russians to colonize other parts of the Soviet Union, which is why you have a number of, a large number of enclaves of Russian speakers in Latvia, and Lithuania and Estonia. And the peoples there absolutely hate the Russians. Seriously, I mean, I was in London um, in, I'm gonna say, late, late August 2019, right? Uh, I, I, was, I was having dinner in Notting Hill, nice restaurant. And this young lady came over and, and she was the, the waiter at the restaurant, um, Jamaican place, uh, nice place. And she came over and she, she started talking to us and she could tell, um, you know, I, I could tell that she was of Slavic descent and we got to talking with her and she said, um, you know, my mother is, uh, Estonian and my father is Russian. And as, as a result, I still speak some Russian and we, you know, we got to, we got to discussing, um, what that, that was like. And she was like, yeah, I mean, you know, back then, back during the time of the Soviet Union, Estonian was suppressed as a language and you couldn't speak it and it was wrong and it was, it was illegal. And then after 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the, the Estonians came back with a vengeance and said, you know, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. I mean, you're going to, you know, Russians became persecuted peoples. So now you have this enclave of Russians who are stuck there and they're, they're under persecution. Same as with all the rest of the Soviet satellites. A large percentage of the Russian people were actually relocated to those places and they've never come back. Russia has lost a significant portion of her people. That is not to say the Soviet Union was a good thing. I'm glad it's dead. Here's another lie that you probably, um, weren't told or you didn't know about. Uh, and this is, this is a lie from the left, by the way. They lie that Reagan didn't defeat the Soviet Union. It wasn't his victory. It was a negotiated settlement. No, it wasn't. The Soviet Union collapsed under the weight of its internal constitution, uh, on, on uh, contradictions, excuse me. Um, Reagan was the one who pushed it to the brink of collapse. He was the one who exposed its internal problems and refused to continue supporting the Soviet Union. If you look at the Soviets at the time, why was it that Reagan was able to do something that Nixon couldn't do, that Ford couldn't do, that Carter definitely couldn't do? Why did he do it? because he no longer tolerated supporting the Russian government or the Soviet government, really. He could understand and he could see that the, the Soviets could not maintain their own economy without American help. He could understand that 
um, the entire Soviet economy, like the whole of well, the whole Russian economy rather, the whole of the Russian economy was actually about the size of California's, and the United States on its own could outproduce the entire Warsaw Pact, the whole thing. So he understood that with one what fifth of the people less. The United States could outproduce almost a billion people in the Soviet Empire. And that's all it took. It was like that one understanding, that one dawning realization that the Soviets couldn't even feed themselves, that they had no ability to maintain their own agricultural production, that they couldn't maintain their own currency, that they could not uh, do anything without Western support, that they depended on very high energy prices to keep their entire economy going. That's when he had that like kind of aha moment and was like, okay, now I know how to defeat these guys. And he embarked on a four-pronged strategy, which is detailed in, um, in Peter Schweitzer's excellent book. And it is a, a superb book, Reagan's War. Can't recommend it strongly enough. Uh, he embarked on this four-pronged strategy to defeat them. He defeated them. He forced them to the negotiating table where he said, you, we will deal on our terms, on America's terms. And he did, he is the one who brought the Soviets to the brink of collapse. It is Gorbachev who had to kind of negotiate that final settlement and he could not somehow make it work in terms of the actual um, contradictions between the reforms that were needed and the problems with the Soviet system, basically. He was the one who had to bring it to an end. Now, where do we go from here? I mean, the lies of the empire are serious and severe, and they're really piling up. It's getting to the point where something has, has to give. The neocons are playing, as I said earlier, a very, very dangerous game. Either Putin goes, and he's assassinated, or he capitulates and is replaced by somebody, and then they're betting that whoever that comes along will be more malleable. This is a colossal mistake. People, you need to understand this really, really, really well. Putin is a moderate, pragmatic conservative. Okay? As weird as that sounds to an American, you need to understand this really well. The alternatives to Putin are not liberals. They're hardliners. They're people like Zhirinovsky. And they're people like the generals in charge. Shoigu, for instance. They're people... It, you, you're not going to get a Medvedev. You're not going to get a, a more moderate, squishy liberal centrist in power. You're going to get a hardliner. And those hardliners are going to say, screw the West, we've had enough of this shit. They are going to embark on persecutions of Western companies and other, uh, you know, kind of entities within Russia that Putin has actually left alone. Do you understand that under Putin, the Jews actually have a good friend? Do you understand that Putin himself is actually pretty pro-Jewish? He's willing and able to engage with Israel and willing to engage with Jewish leaders inside Russia. He's willing and able to tolerate and indeed establish friendships with Muslims in Russia. 
That's why Dagestan and Chechnya are led by pro-Russian, pro-Putin leaders. Do you understand that if you get rid of somebody like him, someone so central to Russian politics, that you're going to replace him with somebody much more hardline, you're not going to improve the situation, you're going to make it worse. You're going to make the results, the, the likelihood of a nuclear confrontation with Russia more likely, not less. Do you understand this? If you don't understand this, and most Western leaders don't get it because they're freaking idiots, they don't get it. But if you don't understand this, understand one thing. The empire is playing a very, very dangerous game because they want to conquer Russia. They want to break Russia as a country. And they're willing to use any tool, any country, any people to accomplish that end. But they're not going to succeed because Russia and China have rejected their lies. Now, you can have your issues with China. I certainly do. I don't trust the Chinese. I don't particularly like the Chinese government. I don't like the Chinese government at all. But you cannot argue that the Chinese are the same as the Western elites. They're not nearly as rapacious. They're not nearly as corrupt. They're not nearly as disgusting as the Western elites are. The Chinese aren't the ones trying to push transgendered ideology on their kids and, you know, uh, homosexual propaganda. They're not the ones trying to promote open marriages and gain so-called marriage, open so-called marriage, transgendered so-called rights. They're not the ones trying to push mental illness upon their children. They're the ones trying to build a secular, yes, but kind of closed off society that does not tolerate these, this, this nonsense. The same with the Russians. They're not interested in this crap. They want to be left alone to develop the way they see fit. And for that crime, the empire is trying to conquer them. But they're not going to succeed. Make no mistake, the Chinese are watching very, very, very carefully what's going on in Ukraine right now. They can see that the empire is impotent. They can see that NATO has no credibility. They can see that if NATO tries to attack Putin, he will bomb the shit out of airfields in all across Poland and probably Germany as well. And they can see and understand that NATO and the United States have actually sponsored biological weapons programs. I didn't get to that actually during all of this. That, that was another lie that uh, the empire produced. So initially the empire denied that there were bioweapons research labs in Ukraine. But if you overlay a map of the initial strikes in Ukraine over suspected bioweapons research labs, it's amazing how closely the two overlap. And I sent a friend of mine this and he was like, holy shit, that's scary. We now have direct documentary evidence captured by the Russians of directives from the Ukrainian government to these research labs saying, quick, destroy all the materials. And the Russian, uh, there was a Russian lieutenant general who went on the air, laid it all out and said, we've discovered evidence that says there's a very comprehensive weapons program. Now we have Victoria Newland going in front of a Senate uh, committee with Marco Rubio, you know, little Marco uh, on it. And she said, yeah, um, so it turns out the Ukrainians do have a bunch of bio research facilities and we're really worried the Russians are going to take over them. So we're working with the Ukrainian government to shut them down, make sure materials don't fall into Russian hands. Read between the lines of what she's saying, because again, they're lying. They're always lying. What she's saying is the Ukrainians have bio-research labs, i.e. bioweapons labs, in a country a few hundred kilometers away from Russia's borders. 
I mean, if that isn't a direct admission of guilt, I don't know what is. On top of which, the directives issued by the Ukrainian government appear to have come essentially from the US government. They're saying, get rid of the evidence, destroy it, get rid of it fast, you know, remove it, make it disappear. We now, therefore, have pretty good reason to believe that the US government is directly responsible for funding bioweapons research within Ukraine designed to target Russia. Think about that for a minute. Think about how dangerous that is, how provocative that is. Whether it is the ghost of Kiev, which was a fiction, or the uh, so-called Russian assault on the Zaporozhye nuclear plant, which was a fiction, it turns out they were firing on Ukrainians who had fired on them. So the Ukrainians had, had taken shelter in Zaporozhye, in the utility sort of buildings, fired on Russian troops. The Russians returned fire and started, you know, started a blaze in the administrative building, which Ukrainian firefighters then had to put out. The nuclear plant itself was, was, was perfectly safe. Or ludicrous reports of the numbers of downed Russian planes or numbers of Russian troops killed or civilian casualty figures, or claims that Russians are bombing civilian areas indiscriminately. These are lies. They are outright lies produced by an empire that is desperate to preserve itself and is desperate to make you believe the lies. Don't believe them. Make up your own mind. Find the evidence. Find the data. Find the knowledge. Go figure it out for yourself. But whatever you do, don't listen to the prostitutes. Most of them, I would say about 95 to 98% of them deserve to be shot for what they've done. And I'm, I, I don't even try to hide it anymore. I mean, I'm so thoroughly disgusted with them. I don't even try to hide this in polite conversation anymore. I'm just like, yeah, just, you know, this is an utterly dishonorable profession. And these people, you know, they, they need to be deserved. They need to be removed for the sake of everybody's kind of sanity and, and integrity. Being a journalist these days, you might as well hold up a sign saying I'm a professional liar at that point. I mean, I, I have no respect for journalists anymore. None. So don't listen to them. Make up your own mind. Read what's out there. Listen to what's out there. Look for dissenting voices. Process the information for yourself. Filter it through your own mechanisms. Come up with what you think is an, an, an acceptable kind of point of view based on the data you have. But don't rely on anybody else to do your thinking for you, because that's the one thing the empire can't stand. It can't stand people who think for themselves. And that's just the honest truth. If you learn how to think for yourself, you might learn how to see through the lies. You might end up like me, thinking that the West is disgusting and degraded and thoroughly deserves destruction. And that's exactly where I am right now. I love the American people. I love the American Constitution. I love the the ideas and ideals of the West, but I am so disgusted with what the Western governments have become. I cannot wait for them to get a very, very bloody nose. If they start a war with Russia, if NATO is dumb enough to enter war with Russia, I think they're going to find out very, very quickly just how quickly an, an empire can collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. It's happened within our lifetimes before, and I think it's going to happen again. That's about all we have time for. I've kind of lost my voice, so, and it's getting late my time, actually. Um, thank you for listening, as always. I really appreciate it. Please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you have not done so already, make sure you subscribe. Hit the link to join my Telegram channel. Um, spread out the word as much as you can, and 
This has been Didactic Mind, episode 95, Empire of Lies, and I am Didact, signing off.